Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sheila Shoiga, and this is Ready to Be Real Conversations, the podcast series where I chat to people of all walks of life. Some names you'll recognise, others you might not, but my hope is that these conversations will at times inspire, challenge, educate, comfort, or simply entertain you. This week, journalist, filmmaker, podcaster, presenter, and writer, the remarkable Dr. Miriam Francois is my guest. I mean, I gave a speech a while back where I said, you know, uh, when we free Palestine, we free ourselves. And I really stand by that, that Palestine, the issue of Palestine is just one issue that reveals the profound cracks in the system and allows us to recognize those cracks and hopefully to start getting organized for the fight back. Miriam is a Londoner whose mother is Irish and her father is French. She's an award-winning documentary filmmaker and she's been a Muslim since she was 21. When she was younger, she also starred in a number of films, including acting alongside Emma Thompson and Kate Winslet in the Oscar-winning Sense and Sensibility, where she played the role of younger sister Margaret. In this conversation, though, we talk about the recent Sky interview she did that went viral, the importance of indigenous languages, Palestine... Brené Brown's recent statement of what's happening there and how she's not really a fan of the word activist. She's a woman of integrity and intelligence and it was an absolute honour to speak to her. I think I genuinely have taken a sort of attempted, a grassroots approach to my own growth, which is that I've done the projects that are meaningful to me. I've worked, you know, uh, in the trenches, as it were, uh, for very little money for a long time so that I could make sure I was aligned with the sort of work that I was doing. Um, and that all obviously comes with sacrifices at different levels, you know, financial, but also in terms of audiences, you know, in our industry, particularly uh, as a presenter, which is one part of what I do, you know, there is always a, uh, a very, uh, clear pressure to maximize your visibility um, and to sort of play on all of the usual aspects of your person as a woman in that space to mm. gain additional support. And I, uh, you know, uh, there's no swearing on this podcast, I presume, oh, no, but I'm going to say, say fuck that shit. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that's never been me. That's not going to be me. God willing, God preserve. Allah Yustur, as we say, God preserve me from such a fate. I hope to be able to show, uh, I hope to be able to first and foremost carve out a path for myself that feels aligned. But I hope in doing that, that I can show other women that you don't have to show your ass to grow your following. You can if you want, by all means. I regularly enjoy wearing a bikini on the beach, but you know, for that to be the basis upon which we are validated or appreciated. Hell to the fucking no. Yes. This is why I think you are 
a voice that we really need right now. You're coming to the table with a lot of knowledge, with a lot of wisdom. So there's very few people who can actually pick holes in what you're saying because you've studied this stuff extensively. I mean, I do believe in doing your homework and I do believe that your strength comes at sort of speaking from a place of rooted knowledge. Um, and so for me, you know, as you say, I've spent uh, a significant number of years living and studying in the Middle East. I, you know, learned to speak Arabic. Um, I have traveled across the region. Um, I, I understand a certain number of things that were very apparently to me absent in our current conversations around mm. what's happening in the region. And that seems to me a much wider critique I would make of how, um, you know, what's happening in Gaza right now is discussed as if it's sort of happening in isolation, as if there is no history to it, as if this doesn't have implications for regional stability, arguably global stability. Um, all of that sort of, to me, is in some ways, an extension of the sort of colonial erasure of the voices of the natives, as we've called them historically, right? The colonizer doesn't need to consult the native. The colonizer doesn't need to listen to the native. You know, we, 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 we go ahead and do what we need to do. And the native just uh, experiences the consequence. And if the native has the goal, the goal to rebel and to try and stop the colonizers doing what they need to do, then they are terrorists. You know, but that, that's the classic textbook. I mean, I could be describing today, but I could also be describing colonial Algeria. I could be describing, you know, Egypt under the British. <laughs> mm. We could we could find, well, we could, we could talk about the Irish under British rule. Of course, as another good example. For sure. And it's interesting. We're speaking on the 16th of February. And this week alone has been an interesting week in my world. I shared it with you very, very briefly. But I'd love to get your take on it. Something happened that seemed like, okay, to me, a little bit irritating and a bit nonsensical and something I've had to deal with my entire career. I've worked over 25 years in the media in Ireland. I'm a native Irish speaker. Um, and sometimes people will dumb down the language and basically tell me there's no point to it and what are you doing speaking that language Dear God. but it was done again on, an, on a national TV station and it seemed to really ignite uh, a lot of a lot of discussion and a lot of hurt amongst a lot of people who watched because there was a feeling that um, that I suppose I was being disrespected but this is your area of study you have studied post-colonial societies in depth so this is what you know but this has had a big this is a big talking point I mean I'm at the heart of it because I was the person there but it's not really about me it was more that I was there so as somebody representing the Irish language right there was this feeling that it was being dumbed down and insulted on yeah. national it, tv and even the, the way that we say the Irish language rather than Gaelic right it's interesting to me that because so many so few people would even know what we mean if we speak if we say the word Gaelic we have to then explain the Irish language and I'm aware of this because my mom's Irish and I grew up with very few people in my family knowing how to speak fluent Gaelic but also many people being really conscious that the loss of language was a loss of connection with history and so language isn't just a means of communication it is a vehicle through which culture is encompassed it carries in it just ways of understanding the world. It carries within it idioms that express how our culture has filtered reality. And so when we lose language, we lose so much more than just, you know, another means of communicating. We lose connection with the past. We lose, we lose a sense of self. We lose a relationship to the way in which that language shapes how we see the world. And so I don't consider the slight that you experience to be minor in any way. It is, of course, symptomatic of the ways in which um you know irish culture gaelic culture has been denigrated the way that indigenous cultures always are in order to make the case for the uh, ascendance of the colonizers outlook language culture you know there always has to be created an argument for the benefits of speaking english oh more you know there'll be more economic outreach possible you know more possibility of communicating so few people speak gaelic well so few people speak finnish but finnish people speak two languages like you know, it's not beyond us to be able to communicate in our native languages and to learn other languages that are more commonly learned. 
And of course, it also reflects ultimately the, the huge global imbalance when it comes to Western influence, right? The reason that English is the dominant language is because of historical re reasons related to empire. Yeah. You know, we continue to speak the language of empire. I am speaking to you, let's be clear about it, in the language of empire. This conversation would be very different if we were able to have it in Gaelic, and it would be very different if we were able to have it in Arabic. Mm. Um, every language that I speak is for me an entry point into a world. And I, I think that a lot of people who maybe don't have multiple languages may not fully understand that. There's gags in languages that you only understand in that gag. It happens to me all yeah. the time. I was yeah. trying to explain to someone earlier, in French we say, je suis tombé de haut, which means I fell from high. Um, it can mean in a conversation that, you know, you thought you were having uh, a conversation of equals and then they say something and you fall, you know, you, 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 you sort of fall flat on your face. Like you didn't realize that, um, that you'd have very different ways of seeing the issue. So we yeah. say we fall from high, but I don't know an English expression that, you know, can convey that. And that's true of every language. Absolutely. And I think it's fascinating and interesting. And I'm always very conscious of it as somebody who was very fortunate and I'm never smug about it. I think sometimes people might perceive that I am, but I really am not. I fully appreciate that it's it's geography. I, I It's simply because of where I grew up. I grew up in a in an area of Ireland where the language is extremely vibrant and it's my yeah. normal. It's a very normal part of my life to speak it. But I also appreciate that that. I could have grown up somewhere else and that wouldn't have been the case. Yeah. Would it make me less Irish? Of course not. To somebody listening who has a very troubled relationship with their own language, which I appreciate is a reality for a lot of people. What might you say to them from, from your um, point of expertise? I would say start by reading France Fanon's um, Black Faces, White Masks as an entry point into how colonial societies force us, force the natives to wear a white mask in order to obtain respectability, acceptance and social mobility, ultimately, which is you know, what we all need to survive. And so I think it's also important to hold compassion for people who are feeling like they have to change themselves in order to be accepted by colonial structures. You know, I have the privilege of being white and presenting as a white British person that comes with the reality that I am socially accepted in ways that if I were black or if I spoke with an accent or, you know, any number, if I was disabled, that I would not be perceived it automatically with the same level of legitimacy in any space. And mm. so it's not lost on me that, for example, to go back to the Sky interview, had I been an Arab man, I do wonder whether I would A, have been allowed to speak for as long as I did, but B, whether that would have gone viral, because actually maybe part of what was, you know, um, surprising to people with the optics of the conversation there is the assumption of course that as a white person i am complicit with the wider structures of white supremacy i am in many ways that i don't even realize but by and large where i am aware i do try and resist because i see the harm that these structures cause to individuals, to societies, to our planet. You know, this is a much bigger conversation than sort of how someone presents in terms of their ethnicity, right? When I say whiteness, I'm not suggesting that all white people are bad. I'm suggesting that there is a structure that has emerged in our society that privileges people who are presenting as white. And the closer you get to that the sort of proximity to whiteness, the more advantages accrue. And so to your question around the people who might be, you know, seeking proximity to whiteness, I get it. There's advantages to be had by playing by the rules and there are penalties for not, very, very clear penalties for not. And if you come mm -hmm. from a background of struggle, most people are just trying to get out. Maybe we're just trying to get out of the struggle. And I don't blame people for being in that situation because I also can't speak to it. I didn't grow up, you know, in, in the slums of Nairobi. I didn't grow up in, you know, a refugee camp in South, Southern Lebanon. Like, and if I did, maybe I would see things a little differently when it comes to sort of playing by certain rules or not. 
and you're right. I think that's what, as you said, people were surprised, fascinated, perhaps really intrigued by the fact that, mm. you know, here is this white woman. And let's be honest, the truth about it is you're, you're very attractive. Right. So that's a fact. <laughs> so you. there's also this extra layer of, OK, so she's really attractive, but she also has all of this knowledge and she's not afraid also to speak her truth and to speak up in a situation where she could have just taken the easier path. So it shows that strength of character that you have. But I suppose, as you mentioned, your mom is from from Leitrim. So in the heart of Ireland um, and your dad is French. I mean, you have a really interesting heritage. So as you you refer to yourself, you're a British woman. uh, You speak with a British accent. But yes, you're 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 half Irish, you're half French. Yeah, it's interesting. I think um, I've always thought of myself as a Londoner. Um, and partly because in London, the beauty of it is in, well, until Brexit, certainly everyone who kind of was here for any amount of time, no matter what your background was, is a Londoner. Do you know what I mean? Like my, my Ethiopian neighbors who've been here five, six years, they're Londoners. You know what I mean? I'm not, I don't, they're, they're not Ethiopian. They're, they're Londoners now, but British is a different thing to me. And I, I struggle to say that I'm British. I, I, I struggle with it because of my history. I struggle with it because of what that represents. But I think ultimately the biggest reason I struggle with it is because I think Britishness is a very hermetic identity. I think actually Britishness is a very exclusionary identity. Um, Unlike, say, Palestinian identity, just to give a parallel, you know, yesterday I was at a Palestinian restaurant and um, we were talking about kind of what's happening and... um, and the owner, he said to us, you know, Palestine, being Palestinian is not uh, about a particular territory. It's an identity. Anyone who connects to that identity is Palestinian. Mm. And I just thought, isn't, isn't that interesting, you know, that actually yeah. it's so often the, uh, the cultures and identities that are under uh, duress that are the most welcoming and open actually to uh, others sort of joining, partaking, appreciating. And it's the ones that are uh, sort of the, the the closest to the top of the pyramid of uh, white supremacy that are most rigid and uh, unwilling to accept uh, the, the renegotiation of that identity to make room for new generations who are diverse. You know, today, the question is, who in Britain is not a hyphenated identity? And unless we start making space for not just the concept of hyphenated identities, but also the contingent reassessment of how we tell the story of who we are that pays homage to those hyphenated identities, right? So we can't Mm. continue to have a vision of imperial history that's glorified when many of the people who make up Britain today are former or descendants of former subjects of the empire because the narrative of that history you're going to teach these kids cannot be the one that you were teaching three generations ago to a predominantly all-white or four generations ago, five generations ago to an all white classroom, that perception of history cannot be the one that we inculcate today because it will necessarily create divisions. Hmm. It'll necessarily say those who accept it are truly British and those who contest it are not. And for now, I'm fine with being in the not category. When Britishness is open to kind of rethinking what it means to be British today and who gets to define it and whose histories get incorporated into how we think about that identity, I'm down, but we're not there. Will they ever get there? You know, I, I'm sort of uh, a believer that the numerical change will create its own realities. You know, I'm part of a generation. And when I look to the people that are coming up under me, everyone, like I say, is hyphenated. Everyone is intermarrying. Everyone is, you know, I don't, I joke regularly that as a Londoner, I don't know any white British people. Like I say it as a joke, but it's almost true. You know, I'm sure I know some, but like by and large, everyone's just a mix. And I personally love that, right? I love the beauty of the mix. I love what it brings in terms of different perspectives and histories and insights and cultures and philosophies that to me are actually 
the most enriching part of what the intersection of different cultures can bring about. And if you look at sort of how when civilizations have flourished historically, it usually is when there has been sort of this confluence and interaction of different ways of thinking and operating and people bringing different products and different, you know, ideas together. And that sort of merging into sort of innovation in all spheres we unfortunately in the UK right now are at a point where it's much more post-Brexit specifically, uh, I would say isolationist and um, uh, sort of recoiling into themselves quite significantly. And I think mm -hmm. that's either going to be a marker of the demise of Britain as a leading force in the world, not today, not tomorrow, maybe not even in 10 years, but we're on the sl sliding slope, very, very clearly on the sliding slope. Mm. So you've obviously been using your voice very passionately over the past number of months in particular um, over what's happening in Palestine. And obviously it, it's, it's impacting you very deeply. You're feeling it. I sense that from you. And it's wonderful that you are such an important voice right now. Uh, but also something else that I suppose gives you an added layer of understanding and compassion is the fact that you're you're Muslim yourself, which I'd yes. love if you wouldn't mind. And I the last thing I want you to feel is that this is a novelty element of a conversation because I know it's very much and a very much an important part of, of who you are. It um, is. Yeah. Well, maybe if I may, I will start with a little uh, anecdote from when I first became Muslim and I came to Ireland to see some family and there was a, a significant amount of concern uh, or at, at the very least sort of you know, apprehension. And uh, one of my great aunts is a nun and um god bless her and we sat down as a family and i could tell it was the elephant in the room it was the first time that i'd come back and everyone sort of knew but didn't really know how we'd talk about it and uh and so she turned to me and i'm not gonna do i can do an irish accent but i'm not gonna do it out of respect <laughs> and she said to me um she said to me so hold on tell me about this islam stuff and i said okay well you know what do you want to know and she said she said, so, so, so you pray? And I said, yeah, yeah, we pray five times a day. And she said, okay, and you fast? And I said, yeah, yeah, we fast, you know, a whole month during Ramadan. And obviously you recommended, it's recommended you do additional fast throughout the year as a way of sort of remembering God and realigning with your principles. And she said, oh, that's, that's really great. That's really interesting. And then she said, and uh, there's a charity thing that you guys have to do, right? And I was like, yeah. So it's one of the five pillars of the faith that we have to donate a percentage of our wealth, which actually, and I find this very beautiful from our faith perspective, that percentage of our wealth is not actually ever ours. It's considered to be uh, a, a portion of the world because all wealth is from God all good is from God anything in our life is from God right so God has given you this gift of whatever wealth you have big or small and a portion of that belongs to the poor and the test that you have to undertake is whether you're going to deliver it to them and okay. so that's what I I love that I, yeah. concept right it's that actually you're not doing charity like oh these poor poor people let me give them a bit of my wealth no 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 <laughs> God gave you wealth and he gave you wealth to redistribute. And part yes. of that is your Love own that. test with regards to greed and with regards to your own ability to sort of overcome, uh, you know, we all have weaknesses, uh, you know, whether it's, it's greed or whether it's, you know, envy, we all have them. Right. And so, so I, you know, she said, you know, I said, okay, great. Well, she turned to the family and she said, as far as I'm concerned, this is a huge improvement. <laughs> And I and I was talking, oh, wow, thank you so much, you know, and I think that, um, look, I, I became a Muslim when I was 21. I wasn't really looking for faith. I grew up with a lot of Muslims around me. I never really had a lot of, you know, negative feeling. I actually had a lot of positive associations with the faith just because I could, you know, I was always, uh, you know, very welcome in everyone's houses. I was fed fed, well fed, like in the Irish home, um, you know, if there was a, a slipper going because we'd messed up, um, there was another slipper for me. And I appreciated that too. I appreciated that the slipper wasn't just for them. It was for me too. Um, and I, and I always sort of felt that there was something very dignified and beautiful about the faith, but I never knew much about it. And then when I was at university, 
uh, doing my undergraduate degree. Um, it was around the time of 9-11 and then obviously everything in terms of the negative things about Islam and Muslims was coming mm -hmm. out. And then I started to feel much more of a like responsibility to speak up for my friends because people were being attacked on campuses, people were being attacked in the street, verbal abuse was not uncommon. Uh, my friends' mothers were like scared of going out with, you know, a headscarf on and and so I thought, no, you know, I need to, I kind of need to understand what this is about. And so I really just went into it mainly to have enough knowledge to respond to the critics. And then it just kind of led me onto my own uh, spiritual journey that I really was not expecting. You know, I did not anticipate uh, a calling of any kind. Um, and I, and I suppose, you know, a, a Catholic priest actually wrote to me recently and he sort of, I could tell he was a little sad. He was like, you know, Oh, I understand that you're no longer a Catholic and you're a Muslim now. And I wrote back to him and I said, you know, I know that sometimes people try and think of Islam as being very different to Christianity, but as somebody who had to research it extensively, I consider Islam to be an extension of everything that I always believe to be true in my faith as a Catholic and maybe a sort of distancing from certain elements that I was maybe not so keen on. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm thinking maybe like the inviolability of a human for me would be something I would say, you know, all humans have frailties, um, and that sure. sort of thing. But when it comes to dogma and the core elements of faith, um, you know, I'm a big believer in sort of Rumi's uh, understanding of, of religion, which is that there are many rivers flowing into the same sea. And yeah. I'm less interested yeah. in how you get to the sea and more interested in the idea that you're kind of keen to get there. Mm. So whatever whatever yeah. river you need to take, I'm happy for you. That's an important way to get connected to the real. That's what we call God, you know, the real um, behind the veil of this world. Um, mm. And in my life, it's a very grounding framework. You know, Islam has a very big emphasis on social justice. Uh, in our, for example, in the Quran, it says, you know, it's not enough to do good. Uh, so it's not enough to believe. You have to believe and do good. You know, we have sayings like, you know, um, uh, from Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, you know, help your brother, whether he is the oppressor or the oppressed. And, you know, people would ask him, well, how, you know, we know how to help our brother if he's the oppressed, but how do we help him if he's the oppressor? And, you know, yeah. they were like, well, you stop him oppressing, you help him to stop oppressing. And I just thought, look, even that is a space of deep compassion that we're taught vis-a-vis -vis the oppressor. It doesn't say, you know, this idea of Islam as being some kind of like violent faith, it isn't like, go and smite their head. No, it says, help him or her to stop oppressing doesn't say force help you yeah. know and so to me it's a framework for understanding the world and understanding my place within it and it's a set of values that grounds me not just in the values of my ancestors who were christians for whom for me islam is just a continuity of those beliefs but it gives me um, a grounding day to day in in terms of what I feel I stand for. You know that those are my values. We could obviously go into this even further, but there's so much I want to talk to you about. Of and, course. And yeah. but I will say that because it, I, there's a lot of questions coming into my mind, so I, I will ask this if you don't mind, because of I course. do think again it goes back to the perhaps the brainwashing, the ignorance of the um, the regard in which women are 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 held within. Yeah the Muslim tradition. And I would right. just like to give you the opportunity as a woman yeah. who is Muslim to yeah. give your perspective on that. And maybe actually, yeah. uh, you know, educate us, those of us who are listening, who are perhaps listening to you going, God, that sounds lovely, but that's not what I thought it was. Right. And I, and I understand because there is a huge difference between Islam and Muslims. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I'm sure any community of faith would say the same, right? We know that, you know, Catholicism as a theory, beautiful, all Catholics, maybe not. So, yeah, yeah. Some of them amazing, not, not all of them, right? Sure, so sure. we have a similar issue, but I think obviously to me, patriarchy exists in every society in the world. And the only way in which patriarchy seems to be kept in some level of check is through uh, governmental 
you know, restrictions on male power. That's the only thing that matters. I mean, we can try and create sort of moral boundaries and that the most holy of them will follow it. But the reality is that most men, specifically men, but humans in general, will use religion to justify their own desires. And so mm. I think when you talk about um, hyper-patriarchal societies, what you find is hyper-patriarchal men interpreting texts for their own benefits. And what was really interesting to me when I first started looking into Islam was I started comparing the translations that I was reading that were done by men in hyper-patriarchal contexts and women in less patriarchal contexts. And the difference in translation was significant. So I wow. think, you know, we probably don't have time to go into all the elements of it. But what I would say is Islam is currently practiced predominantly now in, you know, countries, uh, especially where it's uh, connected to law, that I would consider to be hyper patriarchal in many ways. And so it's not a surprise to me that the religion mirrors the wider culture. Um, I think there are liberatory um, strands within the faith. Um, but I also think in general, uh, it's very difficult to have uh, overall emancipatory readings of a faith in a context that is uh, socially, politically stifled, in which people don't have even basic rights. You know, much of the Middle East is a society where, you know, we can talk about women's oppression, but actually, I really want to say everyone is experiencing some level of extreme oppression, whether we're talking about, you know, Egypt or Saudi Arabia or, you know, Syria, um, you know, we, these Iraq, you know, these are not contexts that I would say are sort of free and open societies where, mm -hmm. you know, religion can be explored openly. Like you can barely express a political opinion without a risk of serious political consequence. How are you meant to have an open and uh, emancipatory reading of religion in that world where everything is about control? And so yeah. to me, the, the reading of religion today reflects the, the cultures of the context in which it's being read, which is why if you come to you know our context where there's a little more freedom, um, you do tend to find space for more emancipatory readings. Um, and the breadth of those are important. You know, Our faith has always been uh, a faith of many roots. You know, there's not one way to read the Quran. There's not one way to be a Muslim. In fact, the beauty of the faith was that as it traveled across the world, that it adapted to the local context and was then practiced quite differently in various parts of the world. Um, so, you know, there's a whole reason why, of course, the faith, the faith has also lost its reflexivity because during the colonial period, the uh, centers of Islamic learning, like the Zaytuna Institute in Tunisia, but many others were essentially shut down. And when they were shut down, we lost essentially one of the primary connections to um, historical forms of knowledge in the Islamic faith, but we also lost the reflexivity of the faith so that there's a certain amount of status began to uh, set in um, okay. so that you, we went from a faith that was very uh, fluid, very uh, responsive to people's needs. You know, um, for example, a, a sheikh in uh, Baghdad would not give uh, the same ruling as a sheikh in Mosul to the same question. Same question, but very different. But because they're two cities, the response will be very different. And because it will be a different person, the response will be different. We've lost all of that. Now there's a sense of like some guy in a village in Pakistan type, typing on Google can give a ruling or a perspective that has legitimacy for somebody sat in London whose context they understand very little about. That is not how the faith was practiced historically. And it's a very, very poor reflection of what the faith can and, in my opinion, should be. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Let's speak about the past few months. And I suppose, firstly, how, how are you doing yourself? How are you holding up? I have good and bad days. I think that I, uh, I'm exposed to, uh, you know, uh, I mean, it, ultimately, I'm exposed to secondhand trauma on a daily basis and I'm very conscious of what I just said secondhand like yeah. I'm not the one living it I'm not the one experiencing it directly um but part of the difficulty of that is the sense of powerlessness when you're watching uh, a small child screaming in pain when you're watching babies calling for their mom that you know is passed away whilst they're being amputated with very little medical equipment available to you know the the i have seen things that will forever haunt me but i really feel that it's not about me you know it's very much about the fact that um this is being done to people we know it's happened you know it's like for so long it was sort of like oh is it is it a genocide you know is it ethnic cleansing? Like, are they attacking hospitals? And it's like, they've now systematically attacked every hospital in the Gaza Strip. They have systematically applied the same policies. We have seen the rounding up and torture and execution of men, women, and children. We are, we know that there are thousands of Palestinians uh, being detained who are from the West Bank, which has got nothing to do with Hamas. Um, we know that they're in military detention without access to a lawyer for sometimes at least six months at a time. Amongst them are senior people like human rights lawyers, uh, people who object to house demolitions. Uh, we have had, you know, uh, allegations of sexual assault against Palestinian detainees uh, in Israeli prisons for many, many years this is not just a recent thing yeah um and so if you're watching closely and if you've been watching closely uh, you know as many of us have not just uh, for the last few months then you know that there's been a sort of uh, a, a process of ethnic cleansing of the palestinian people that, that's ongoing right and so this is just the latest chapter of that ethnic cleansing and um and the difficulty, the frustration for someone in my position here in the comfort of my home in the West is that it's so obvious to me what's going on. And then there's such a profound disconnect in the conversations that we're having in the public arena around it so that I'm sometimes sort of not just me, many of my colleagues and I have the same conversation that we're sort of like, are we even on the same planet that yeah. this is? the conversation that you want to have at this point when there are, you know, whatever, 1.4 million people in Rafa right now, whilst it's being bombed, whilst tents are being bombed, that we're denying people access to food, to water, to medication, that people are literally starving and dying of disease meters away from trucks full of aid, full you know, we have colleagues in Rafa who are, you know, meters away from starving children begging for their lives. Mm. This is what's happening. So no matter how, you know, hard it might be on some days for me to watch that, I am not stuck in Gaza begging the international community for clean water, which yeah. to me, beyond anything else, speaks to the ongoing um, or the continuity of colonial uh, behavior 
in, you know, we tend to talk about sort of post-colonial context and, you know, post-imperial world. But actually, I think what we see in Palestine right now and what we're seeing specifically in Gaza right now, although it's been happening in the West Bank and uh, Jerusalem area for a while as well, is, uh, you know, very clear colonial tactics of, you know, destruction, erasure of history and language and infrastructure, you know, destroying universities, hospitals schools, um, buildings, so that you create uh, a reality on the ground uh, and then you import, uh, you know, a foreign population, a settler population, many of them from uh, the U.S., um, to repopulate the area uh, and sort of claim some some sort of... um, narrative around the right to appropriation which of course all colonizers did you know whether Mm. it was down to the 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 barbarity of the locals that needed civilizing or uh you know it was well you know you can't uh, manage your societies for yourself so we're just going to come and and help you out and of course take a little cut or a very big cut as it were uh while we do it so um yeah, sorry, that was a long-winded way of saying it's it's not easy to watch people being exterminated in the knowledge that I don't think anyone isn't clear today as we speak on what is really happening there. No, certainly not, certainly not. And I think as well the the, the frustration a lot of people feel and the, and, and the insanity I often feel like I'm experiencing when... I watch people I have admired, I have followed, you know, comment or not comment on what's happening. I mean, I even had it last week. So I spoke about the TV show I was on and they asked me about a dream guest. Obviously, you're a dream guest. But I also said (laughs) Brené Brown, because up until that point, Mm. she certainly was. Interesting that you should raise her name. Yes, let's talk about Brené Brown. I was excited to read her viewpoint. I was like, finally, we're going to hear from Brené. And I read what she her perspective on the now, and it was so disappointing. Um, the naivety and the damage by her perspective, which I I know that you have views on. So let's 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 yeah, let's talk about Brene. I didn't think I'd be talking about Brene Brown to you, but here we are. Um, look, I think I was watching something yesterday by an academic who was talking about the struggle that white liberals have in taking the lead from brown people when it comes to the notion of liberatory or emancipatory politics. Because deep within the white psyche, deep within white societies, in everything we imbibe is the notion that we know better. You know, we can teach them about freedom and democracy and human rights, but they have nothing to teach us about those things. And so what happens is you have a movement, a liberation movement that is confronting the liberal left or the liberal West with this image of itself as a participant in horror and asking it to join not take over, not appropriate, not lead, to join from a Mm. space of humility for the fact that this is not your reality, but that these people are living through it, and so maybe you should listen to them. (laughs) That is not possible, because white people can't take their leads from the savage, right? You You can't have brown people leading an emancipatory movement, because deep within us as white people is still this belief, I think, that's pervasive in our societies, that it is only us who are beholden to um, the right to assert the legitimacy of a set of values or beliefs. So, um, you know, liberal beliefs are universal, but if you express liberation, let's say through uh, an Islamic perspective, although not necessarily, and of course that's not the case in Palestine, I just want to be absolutely clear sure. that Palestinians are Muslim, they are Catholic, uh, they are, uh, you know, Jewish, you know, they're Jewish Palestinians and, and also atheists. You know, when I lived sure. in Palestine, I had mates who were very clearly atheist and, um, there, so there's everything, just like in our societies, and it's almost like strange that we have to verbalize that, but just like us, you know, Palestinians are a diverse range of people with a diverse range of beliefs. But the idiom in which the liberation struggle is being expressed, which is that, you know, we are confronted with, um, you know, an extension of the colonial mindset, which is epitomized through 
you know, Israel being essentially an American proxy in the region and behaving absolutely like an American proxy in the region. You know, if you look back on historical documents, we have a very clear idea when Israel is created that it will have that function, that it will be there to help sort of manage the Arabs, you know, uh, and and provide a base uh, of which, of course, as you well know, the Americans have hundreds of these bases uh, around the world. And so in, in, in many cases, it might be viewed as perhaps the most sophisticated version of that base. Um, but um, yeah, certainly I think Brene, like many liberals, um, s- still struggles to see the full humanity and uh, context of... Oh, uh, yeah, of, of 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 brown people and brown people's history, and I think that that in itself is a reflection of the wider ongoing imperial power dynamics that continue to maintain the notion that all knowledge comes from the West down, and that actually there can't be a construction of knowledge and understanding of the world that comes from the global South up. And as somebody who is a huge fan of scholarship from the global South, I would say that most people would actually massively benefit from learning more about the global South and the various perspectives that are had on the West. And that actually, if you looked at the West, so this is one of the beauties of travel. If you have the opportunity to travel to anywhere in the global South and you look back at where you're from through the eyes of the people you now live with, you will see a monster. Mm. And so you might thought that you were previously, you know, representing Lady Liberty out here, and then you will travel to a part of the world where, you know, uh, military, US military forces are engaged in proxy wars and huge sanctions and, you know, I mean, Yemen, obviously, is, uh, you know, in, in, in one of the most egregious examples of the ways in which sanctions have been used to uh, create, you know, suffering on an unimaginable scale. Um, Iran is another example. You know, I'm no fan of the Iranian government, but I also just do not believe in um, sort of the collective punishment of the Iranian people through the sanctions that have been enduring. I think that um, it's it's not right and it doesn't help. And, um, you know, it probably just creates more polarization and we kind of just need less of that, more understanding, less polarization. When did you live in Palestine? Uh, I lived there from 2003 to 2004. I was there when Yasser Arafat um, was um brought back after he was unalived mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. in whatever capacity um and uh i was actually in the compound in ramallah when the helicopter came down and it was full of people i mean it was literally like a historic moment and i'm in there and like the helicopter comes down and it lands and then it gets rushed by all these people and then it was like kind of went back up again and and then people were shooting everywhere and you know not in a bad way guys in a sort of it's very common in the middle east like in celebratory moments for people to shoot guns not in a like try and kill people kind of way um and um and there was just this sense that it was such a such a profound moment such a profound shift you know with everything that Arafat had come to represent I mean he was of course the the ultimate symbol of the Palestinian liberation movement and we've not Mm. really seen and he had many faults and I know uh, obviously Palestinians will have many critiques of him too but ultimately I don't think that anyone has come through that has the stature and charisma and ability to rally in the way that he did as a figure um so so yeah i I spent um just under a year working for a charity that was um operating in the west bank and i was living in east jerusalem at the time yeah it's wonderful the sense of self that you have that sense of knowing who you are um you deliver you know your opinion very calmly very reasonably you're not shouting but you definitely you definitely put people um you know you correct people if you feel like they've stepped out of line and and rightly so but you have that sense of being comfortable in your own skin did you have that from an early age 
Uh, I, I've grown into it. You know, I think one of the great ironies of being a woman is that we are sold the mythology that our peak is when we're like 22 or some shit. And I was definitely not peak me at 22 or 23. I was learning how to be me at that age. And although I, you know, I'm thankful to my parents that I had some, uh, my parents and my grandparents, God rest their souls, and my wider family, you know, we have a, a big family on the Irish side uh, for, for grounding me in, in very important ways uh, in, in who we are and what we stand for and, you know, never forgetting that, you know, my 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 great so my grandma's granddad was you know killed by the black and tan you know he was a member of the ira this is part of our history this is part of my heritage i think that all of those elements definitely grounded my my dad is like a, a french nationalist you know uh and and, and a, a big history buff and within French history, of course, although these days sort of through the EU, we're very much aligned with the American line. If you remember, uh, you know, the post-war era uh, with uh, Charles de Gaulle, yeah. who is, of course, a sort of mythologically, uh, you know, admired uh, figure in France, uh, Charles de Gaulle was very skeptical of the, U the US. Um, he was very skeptical of the, uh, the Marshall Plan, of course, that was uh, presented as, you know, a gift a gift of America to help Europe, but of course was a, an, a sort of uh, a, a, the types of loans that we have seen since uh, given to other countries where, you know, the market is flooded with US products, where, um, you know, there are privileges given to American companies in exchange for that aid. Um, and that ultimately that is to the detriment of local culture and local business and, and the local economy. And um, de Gaulle was very aware that America was never operating uh, from a place of benevolence, you know, and I think that's probably mm. one of the biggest mythologies around the US is that it's like a country that sort of is out here to save the world, of course, because it created, you know, Superman and Batman and, you know, all these superheroes and they're all out to just save the world. And of course, if you're the rest of the world, you're actually aware that America is the country that has evaded the most countries of any other country globally. So mm. maybe that perception is kind of diametrically opposed. So a roundabout way of saying that I think that there were many things in my childhood that connected me to the idea of a much wider struggle and made me conscious that the global dynamics that we're engaged with are not always as they seem. And so mm. as I've grown into myself as a woman, I've become, uh, you know, my faith has been a huge validation of sort of what I stand for. And of course, it's, um, you know, we say in our in Islam, Islam is not a, a faith, you know, it's not just a set of beliefs, it's a deen, it's a way of life. And when I say that, what I mean is that um, there are practices that we undertake as Muslims in our day to day, that are sort of um, very much designed to help you recalibrate with your values. So let's say, you know, the five prayers a day, which I'm sure a lot of people would be like, Oh, my God, how do you pray five times a day? But we see the prayers as basically breaking us away from the matrix. Like this is the matrix mm -hmm. and you can get sucked into the values of the matrix and to the lure of like capitalism and fame and all this crap and you get back on your prayer mat and you put your your forehead to the ground in humility before god and you remember in those prayers you literally recite back the values that you hold to be true and if you do that properly and you do it consistently uh, you know, my experience is that it's a, a very um, important way to remain on track with what it is that you believe, you know, and, and, and as I said, I'm sure other faiths have their own ways yeah, of doing sure. it. And you, said, and you said that earlier. I mean, and that's it. There are so many different rituals, depending right. on what we resonate with, whether it's it's that we don't believe in a religion per se, but we are spiritual. But if you have yeah. practices or somebody else who might not even feel their spiritual, but feel a connection to being mindful and having mindfulness right. practices in their days. These are, these are traditions, are are elements that we 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 bring into our day to bring about a sense of connection with ourselves. And as you said, stepping yeah. away from, from what we perceive to be real life, but is it really? Yeah. Um, yeah. And obviously, the biggest mythology of all is actually, as women, we get better. 
We get mm. better. We're told yeah, that we, as we age, we are less valuable, that we are less worthy of admiration, of uh, recognition. You know, oh my God, we can't have women over 35 on our screens, all this crap. And it's like, hold on, wait, what? Like, I don't feel like I have even like I'm just stepping into the woman that I am. This is the beginning of you seeing me for who I really am. And actually maybe the truth is that as patriarchal societies, we would much rather have younger women, less experienced women, less knowledgeable women, women who are not yet fully standing in their power in positions of power so mm. that they can be more easily manipulated so they can be more easily controlled and okay. as you get older it is no irony that you become perceived as a more difficult woman mm -hmm. that you get perceived as more yeah just a, a, a bit prickly i'll tell you yeah. what's prickly what's prickly is moving through the world as a woman i am prickly because you prickle me that's yeah. why i'm prickly <laughs> This is, this is a prickly space to navigate as a woman because you're trying to tell me that as we get more experience, more knowledge, more awareness of ourselves and the world, that we're less valuable? Mm -hmm. I don't think so. And you know what? In the last few months as well, what I am seeing is women finding their voice stepping into mm -hmm. their power in a way that is really fascinating to me. Women who have, and I'll be honest, I was one of them. I went to my first yeah. protest last month. I hadn't been mm. before. So I would have never regarded myself as a protester or or even thought oh, as, a, as a myself as an activist or anything like it. Mm. But I think mm. people are rediscovering or are discovering a part of themselves now that was dormant or they didn't know even existed. Um, so yeah. I'm really interested to get your take on that because even even the concept of protesting and getting out and using your voice there's still it because it's new and a lot of people fear the new and the unknown maybe some words yeah. of encouragement for those who are dipping their toe in this area and and finding that they 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 feel compelled to get involved right so i would say one thing that's really interesting to me is i don't like the word activist personally okay. because i think that it can it creates a separate category of people who are fighting for the rights that we all want and actually it's kind of our responsibility as citizens to be active within our societies to protect the rights that we have and to advance additional rights that we don't and it's, um, you know, in, in, so I, I went to a French school in the French system. You study civic education. I studied what it means to be a citizen. I studied how our political system operates. I studied what my responsibilities are within that system, not just voting, but local politics all the way up to, you know, the presidency, all the way up to the European Union we studied. And my sense is that we have lost this sense of the connection between your responsibilities and rights as a citizen and the power structures that govern us. And so what we today call activism is actually just a reawakening among, I think, many people of the fact that there is now such a profound disconnect between what's happening in centers of power and what people are saying, thinking, and want on the ground. Mm. And that actually Palestine is just revealing to us many of those fault lines. It's yeah. revealing to us that democracy is broken because 70% of the UK population want to cease fire and yet our officials are incapable of leveraging anything even close to that. You know, we, we know that, you know, a majority of people think that aid should be, be, be able to go in. Nothing is happening with that. We know a majority of people object to, you know, the government cutting taxes for the rich and increasing taxes for the majority. No objection to that. And I think the system is now so profoundly broken so that from housing to education to healthcare, we are seeing that there is nothing that is currently operating in the interests of the majority. And so I really hope that what we're actually witness to today is that Palestine, although we tend to think of being participants in trying to free Palestine, Palestine is freeing us yes. from the delusion that we were existing within a system that was operational. It has just confronted us with the reality that this shit isn't working. And the only people who are going to be able to make change is us. And mm. the only way it can change is if we 
take back that power, that we stop ceding it to people in positions of authority and saying, well, I've cast my vote, you know, what can I do? You know, it's demanding power. People with power don't, you know, and this is true in all, all of history, people don't empower, don't just hand back power you have to fight to get that power back and i don't necessarily mean you know uh you know for those of us trying to catch me out uh picking up arms i'm talking about although of course there may be situations where that is a legitimate basis you know occupied people under international law have a right to resist occupation and that is you know enshrined in the values of the international community but by and large, what we're really talking about is reclaiming the power so that our societies are no longer in the service of elites and corporations and corporate interests and return as they should be to being in service to the people. And that's not going to happen without a fight back. This, what we're doing with Palestine, is just the foreground, in my opinion, to a much wider fight back that we need to all be engaged in. And that's mm -hmm. why I don't think we should use even the notion of like activists that sort of saying, oh, well, I can continue to just be a sort of civilian and those guys over there will deal with it. No, 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 babes. Like no one's coming to save us unless you jump in and she jumps in and he jumps in and we all jump in. They will continue to create and maintain a system that is increasingly, uh, you know, disconnected from the needs of the majority. You know, the, the, the Oxfam census that we've seen for the last decade has been sounding the alarm. Oh, you know, the gap between wealth and poor has never been so big. Every year we hear this. Every year we hear the same report. The gap between wealthy and poor has never been so big. 70% of the UK, uh, you know, 1% of the UK population own more wealth than 70%. The, hello? Anybody home? Anybody think this might be an issue that we want to address? You know, so I think, yeah, I, I mean, I gave a speech a while back where I said, you know, uh, when we free Palestine, we free ourselves. And I really stand by that, that Palestine, the issue of Palestine is just one issue that reveals the profound cracks in the system and allows us to recognize those cracks and hopefully to start getting organized for the fight back. And that's a really important message that each and every person listening to this conversation now, whether they're somebody who's actively getting involved in whatever that looks like for them or somebody who feels numbed by it or incapable of getting involved, every single person matters. Every voice matters. doesn't matter Absolutely. if you have a big following online or you have a private account with two followers. Your voice really does count. And uh, that's it. Thank you, because that's. I think a lot of people need to hear that. I mean, I, I feel like I need yeah. to hear it sometimes myself, but I, yeah. I, I've, I've woken up to the fact that actually, even though I feel, oh, what does it matter? What does it matter if I'm sharing? Oh, no. Yeah. It does. It really does. It, it, so it matters on so many fronts. And I think this is also part of what we have lost in the the sort of sense of, of apathy that's sunk in. So when So as much as the technologies that we have has created this sense of being connected, the real power of community, which has been completely dismantled by the removing of funds from local councils, the destruction of community centers and them being resold to make luxury flats or such like, the inability of communities to find spaces where they can come together and share in a common conversation around their interests is the starting point for action. So I always say, uh, Everyone matters, but not sat alone in your living room. You matter when you decide to get up and join your neighbor, John, and your, you know, your other neighbor, uh, you know, Janine, and you all get together and you say, we're really sick of the fact that, you know, there are drug dealers downstairs, uh, you know, using our kids park, or we're really sick of the fact that this road has had a pothole in it for 10 years. And you decide to make that your fight. And you alone might not win that fight. But the 10 of you together might well win that fight. And history is replete with examples of people ordinary people deciding one day that they're going to get organized and make change. And in some cases they make small change and in some cases they make big change, but it's all about believing that you can and reclaim the power and making, getting organized in community settings to reclaim it. The power is in community. The power is in the numbers. We are the majority, right? 
they're, they're like a few of them in power. And their only way of maintaining that is because we're all too distracted by Netflix or, or, or props to Netflix, you do some great content, but largely we're all disconnected from the issues that are really affecting us. And we're also bloody exhausted by the end of the day that the idea of now going down and having a community meeting is, you know, maybe the last thing on our list, but it's the only way that, gonna, that we're really going to be able to reclaim power and make change. On that note, I'm going to wrap up the conversation. It really has been incredible to talk to you and I'm Likewise, so grateful for your time and your wisdom. I feel, I feel really riled up in a good way after, after the chat. Thank awesome. you, Miriam. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode with Miriam, I think you'll appreciate a previous conversation I had with Daniel Matte a few weeks ago. Simply scroll back to find it. And if you like what I do, please support the podcast by leaving a little comment or giving a rating. And thank you so much for listening to Ready To Be Real. 